Hello, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by CURE, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Last month, we had the opportunity to take our Seizing Life podcast on the road to the 7th Annual Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. This amazing event showcases the epilepsy community spreading awareness about this complicated condition while also offering educational courses and resources for patients and caregivers. This event is a two-day expo featuring vendors, clinicians, and researchers from around the world, culminating in an inspiring day at Disneyland Park where families proudly display their purple shirts in support of epilepsy awareness. This year, CURE highlighted promising advancements in epilepsy research, including information on clinical trials and emerging epilepsy therapies. While there, we spoke with some of the top experts from around the U.S. on a variety of different topics. Today, we bring you some of the highlights from those conversations. It's only appropriate that we begin with the man who started this amazing event, Brad Levy, the founder of Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland and father to Sophie, his teenage daughter living with epilepsy. I am beyond thrilled to be able to sit across from someone who has become such a dear friend of mine, uh, Mr. Brad Levy, who actually is the reason that we are all here today at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. Brad, thank you so, so much for, for creating this, for hosting us, for giving us all this platform and um, the ability to educate and, and raise awareness. I, you, what you have created here is really phenomenal. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about your journey into epilepsy. Your daughter, Sophie, has epilepsy. And uh, so tell us a little bit about her and, and your inspiration. So starting at five, Sophie started having seizures. Um, we kind of chased our tails for a few years looking for the answer. Uh, we were very fortunate to land at UCLA who diagnosed her with a, a lesion on her left temporal that was causing all the seizures. Um, it was a major decision for the family to go through brain surgery. It was pretty simple for the doctor to, to sell us on it, but it was hard to go through with. Um, and fortunately, from the day of the surgery, she is seizure-free almost a little over 10 years now. Which is, it's just an amazing thing. And I think you have built something really remarkable and your passion just speaks volumes. This is gonna move on. This is my legacy. This event is gonna be the legacy. We'll go on forever. We, we need cures. We need better results. We need better surgical outcomes. We need more meds. We need to stop epilepsy. This is every disability and medical ailment has major fundraising efforts, major organizations funding you know, research and science and looking for cures. And in epilepsy, we seem to be struggling, uh, you know, until Cure came along and decided that they were gonna really focus on a focused agenda to find a cure. And now we have somebody to work with. But until then, it was all these support groups were out there on their own, independently trying to, you know, wage war against epilepsy while helping families get to where they need to be. Um, and you know, that old slogan, you know, united we stand, divided we have nothing. So we are really, you know, all about uniting the entire epilepsy community, everybody working hard. All these grassroots support groups are, um, are working hard with each other, sharing data, sharing families, sharing resources. Um, 
And that, that's really why we do it. Dr. Heather Mefford, an attending physician at Seattle Children's Hospital, spoke with us about genetics. Can you sort of give us a, a very brief overview of the genetic tests that are currently available that patients could request from their doctor? Sure. So the tests that I usually recommend for patients depend a little bit on exactly how they present with epilepsy. Um, but the tests that are available would include um, a chromosome test that looks for kind of missing and extra pieces of DNA, so what we call deletions or duplications. Um, those look like they're responsible for about 5 to 10% of kids who have really severe early onset uh, pediatric epilepsies. And those are the ones where, where testing has really been successful. Um, the second test that's available is what we call a gene panel. So this is a test that looks at the spelling or the sequence of the DNA for genes that we know if you have a genetic change can cause epilepsy. And those tests sometimes will look at 10 genes at once, 100 genes at once, or even 1,000 genes at once. Oh, wow. There's a lot of variability, so it's really good to talk to your genetics provider or your epilepsy provider or both about what the right test is. I didn't realize that when doctors are talking about an epilepsy panel that there were that many different, I guess, brands of panels right. is what you're, you're dealing yeah. with there so that, oh, that's really interesting to know. Right. So I always tell, you know, providers, you have to know your test because uh, you can't find what you're not looking for. Right. So if you suspect a certain genetic diagnosis and you send a gene panel, and the gene you think is causative is not on that panel, you'll never find it, right? Um, luckily today, many of the panels are pretty expansive and inclusive of lots of genes, um, but the most inclusive test would be an exome. And an exome is a fancy word for, let's look at all 20,000 genes that humans have and look for changes. So there you'll get, um, obviously, all the genes that we know are associated with epilepsy. Um, but a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah. So there are, are caveats to doing that test too. What is the difference between whole exome and whole genome sequencing? So whole exome sequencing and for kind of the suite of tests that I talked about <laughs> can give us a diagnosis maybe up to 50% of the time in, in, if you choose your patients carefully, but that does leave half the patients without a diagnosis. So whole genome sequencing is looking at every single base or letter in our genome, um, so looking at all of the DNA and the, the spelling therein. Whole exome sequencing, which I mentioned, looks at 20,000 genes. Those make up only about 1% of our DNA. So despite the fact that those 20,000 genes provide the primary instructions right, for building our body, for our cells communicating properly, um, it's only 1% of our DNA. So the genome sequencing, which is 100% approximately, um, offers a lot of promise. Uh, one of the difficulties with genome sequencing is that uh, we don't know as much about if you make a change in a piece of DNA that's not a gene, what does that mean and what's the effect? So we're learning a lot, um, but we're, we're not able to interpret it as quickly as we can for the exome. You know, I've often heard um, 
specifically within the, the scientific community, encouraging patients to go back and have their, um, ex, um, their whole exome sequencing or genome redone, what is, what is the value in going back and having that uh, genetic material retested? I would say that in, in the past five years, the number of genes associated with epilepsy has just grown. So if you had an exome five years ago, they may have found a change, but it was in a gene that we didn't know anything about. And if you went back and looked at that today, they might say, oh, we see this change, and now there are three reports in the literature of patients with epilepsy who have changes in this gene. So we think now that this is important. You know, we just didn't know enough five years ago or three years ago or even sometimes a year ago. Um, so it, it is important to do that and to continue to see genetics, even if you don't yet have a genetic diagnosis. What's some of the exciting research that we're seeing in genetics? What comes after you do whole genome sequencing and you still have no answers? What's going to be next? Uh, where do we go next is kind of exactly what my lab is working on right now. So we have all these patients with, without a diagnosis. We say, what is it that we're missing? And even um, the technology that we have to sequence the whole genome, there are things that we miss. Um, there are different types of changes, so changes that don't necessarily um, change the sequence or the spelling of the DNA, but maybe um, the attachments to the DNA or the shape of the DNA. And so those are things we can start to explore and say, maybe there's something about the DNA that turns off that gene, but it's not a sequence change, for example. Or maybe um, there are other types of changes where there are lots of repetitive letters in the DNA, and those are actually hard to read um, with regular sequencing, so we, sometimes we have to look for them in different ways. And those types of changes can alter how a gene functions or whether it's on or off. Um, so there's a lot of work right now to say, okay, what are we missing and how do we go about finding it? So those are the, the directions that we're going. We were fortunate to speak with one of the premier epilepsy researchers, Dr. Robert Fisher, professor and director of the Stanford Epilepsy Center. I think we are all uh, in this community grasping at straws to try and, you know, specifically for, you know, the 30% the of folks who remain um, resistant to available treatments, you know, whatever we can get our hands on. Is, is helpful. To that end, is there anything coming down the pike in terms of devices um, that it looks promising or exciting to you? Sure. So um, the neurostimulation devices we have now are not curative. They're, right. they're palliative. We'd love to have um, methods to make them um, applicable to a much larger group of people and to completely uh, stop seizures. Um, so there's work going to try and better identify who are the best candidates, what are the best targets. We've only tried a very few target targets in the brain. I think there are many more that are probably even likely to be more effective than the ones we've done so far. In terms of different devices, um, it would be nice if it could be non-invasive, if you didn't have to um, drill through skull or put machinery in the, in the chest. And um, several of us, me included, are working on attempting to develop non-invasive devices that use either magnetic pulses from a helmet or electrical stimulation through the scalp um, that may have effects that would be similar 
to the implanted stimulators, but uh, something that would be entirely non-invasive and maybe even something that could be done at home with some people. And then there's uh, a new technology that's come out. Uh, it's really a very old technology, but new in neuromodulation called focused ultrasound that I think has uh, some promise in this area as well. Um, everybody in medicine knows about ultrasound for, for example, um, looking in the womb you during know, a pregnancy. pregnancy. And, and yeah, it's it's super safe. Yeah. But uh, there's use of ultrasound as well as a surgical tool right now, uh, basically burning a very small, well-localized hole in a brain as a surgeon would do if a surgeon went in and removed it. It can be done externally. So it's, it's approved, for example, for reducing severe tremor in people by burning out a very small area of brain that causes tremor. Now, between the super safe low dose that you can use on a pregnant woman and the high dose uh -huh. that will burn a piece of the brain out, there's a whole middle ground which does not uh, destroy brain tissue but may modulate its effects. And ultrasound has the beauty of being able to focus very precisely in any part of the brain we want by directing the beam. So if we can make it, uh, make the brain less uh, excitable at the place that we shine it by engineering that effect, uh, then that also would be uh, a very exciting uh, thing to do non-invasive. And I'll, I'll mention one other technology that is revolutionizing neuroscience and I, I think may someday come to the clinic, and that is called optogenetics. This is um, a technology that was invented by a Stanford uh, researcher, uh, Carl Dyseroth, and it um, injects genes in brain. This is only done in animals uh, so far, not in humans, um, but it would potentially be applicable to humans that make the nerve tissue sensitive to light, to different wavelengths of light. And for example, um, a uh, yellow light might have one effect on the tissue to excite or inhibit it, and an orange light might have the opposite effect. So you can literally turn on and off regions of brain with fiber optics shining different colors of light uh, on that uh, part of the brain. And uh, that is a, is a degree of control that we've not, not had before. It's not available in humans yet. The technologies for magnetic and electrical stimulation or ultrasound modulation are not clinically available or clinically proven. So they're in a different category from the yeah. three I mentioned before that are approved. But there's just a tremendous amount of, of work uh, here. Yeah. Um, we will continue to get better drugs. They're coming out all the time. But you're right, that 30% who don't respond to the medicines is yeah. the same 30% that existed 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it is time to look in some other directions to supplement the drugs. Dr. Joffrey Elia, board-certified pediatric neurosurgeon at Children's Hospital of Orange County, spoke with us about surgical approaches to epilepsy and the Rosa robot. What makes someone a candidate for surgery? Um, so as, as you know, the, there's a big workup that's done uh, to determine if somebody is an epilepsy surgery candidate or not. Um, 
first, uh, someone with epilepsy would be worked up by an epileptologist, uh, and the epileptologist would order an imaging study. They would get an MRI to make sure there's no underlying uh, brain lesion that could potentially be causing the, the seizures. Uh, they would get an EEG or long-term EEG or VTM, uh, video telemetry, uh, to, to see if they could lateralize or localize what, what part of the brain the seizures are, are coming from. In addition to that, uh, we may get some additional studies such as a PET scan, a PET uh, a SPECT, uh, a MEG, and these are all other studies that can be used to help localize where the seizures are coming from. And then at that point, uh, and, and, and patients would also get a, a neuropsychiatric testing, uh, and that helps us uh, to localize any sort of deficits, and sometimes it can help lateralize uh, seizures as well. And so all that information is then taken together, and typically um, we would meet as a group with a surgeon, the epileptologist, the neuropsychologist, the radiologist, go over all the studies, and then determine if someone is a candidate or not. It sounds like in order to be a candidate, you really have to be able to zero in on exactly where those, what part of the brain those uh, seizures are originating from. Yeah. I, ideally, um, but once we have the information, we come up with a hypothesis of where we think the seizures may come, be coming from, and there may be multiple different areas. And so uh, to gather more information, then we can place uh, uh, electrodes uh, directly into the brain or around the brain, um, either on one side or bilaterally, depending on the hypothesis, to then try to capture a seizure and see where that electrical activity is coming from. And what kind of um, surgical procedures can be done in that case? Uh, classically, we would do what's called a craniotomy. We make an incision, we elevate the bone, we open up the dura or the covering over the brain, and then we place electrodes directly on the brain, in particular the areas of the brain that we're con uh, concerned with the seizure are coming from. Uh, but uh, uh, we can also place uh, electrodes directly in the brain. So instead of doing a large craniotomy uh, through a small, uh, a few millimeter uh, burr hole or, uh, opening, we uh, place an electrode uh, direct stereotactically, so using a special uh, neuronavigation software uh, directly into particular uh, parts of the brain. And uh, this is much, well, much better uh, tolerated. Uh, there's less blood loss, less pain. Uh, and then we can still gather uh, a lot of important information to help, again, try to pinpoint where the seizures are, are coming from. And so in order to do this, uh, at our institution, for, for example. It, it, historically, uh, uh, people would use frames and uh, their special frames and you have to calculate exactly where you put the electrode in. But uh, now we use a robotic arm, which is uh, uh, the, the, this, the tool that we use is the ROSA uh, robot. And so I, uh, prior to surgery, I can plan exactly where I want the electrodes uh, to go. Uh, and then the day of the surgery, uh, I basically make the, the, the small opening. I put a little bolt in the bone and then pass the electrode down to the target, uh, trying to avoid uh, any uh, important structure vascular structures to prevent any bleeding or causing any damage uh, to the brain. And so is the, the Rosa robot that you work with, is that for diagnostic or are you actually removing part of the brain using that robot? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, so, so as I was describing, in, in this particular case, it would be diagnostic, so it's to gather more information and figure out where the seizures are coming from. Uh, but once we, we figure out where the seizures are coming from, then uh, uh, we remove the electrodes and then we, then, uh, we have a, another conversation as to what the next uh, step in treatment would be. And so uh, potentially if it's an area that, that can be resected, we would remove it. Um, if uh, it's a place that can be ablated, we could uh, put a laser ablation probe and, and burn uh, the tissue uh, to give us a similar effect. Um, or if it's in an eloquent part of the brain, so part of the brain that helps us with language, uh, with a movement, and, uh, uh, and we decide we, we, we can't take that part of the brain out, uh, then sometimes we can put uh, electrodes uh, directly on or over the brain that are, that are permanent electrodes that are get, then connected to a generator, which is called the RNS, and that basically detects the electrical activity uh, on the brain, and then when there's a seizure, it'll send a signal to help uh, uh, stop the seizures as well. Uh, and so the ROSA can actually be used for implanting uh, the electrodes initially, uh, 
Uh, it could also be used to help target and place the um, ablation probe, um, or it could be used actually to place the, the, the depth probe if we're doing an RNS. So it can be used for a lot of different steps in, in the surgery. What is it about it that sets it apart from what we had before? Sure. Uh, well, uh, again, in terms of invasive monitoring, it gives us our, our uh, ability to place lots of electrodes throughout the, the brain in a much more efficient uh, manner. So again, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, previously, uh, we would use frames, uh, and then it was just—it uh, just took a lot more uh, a time to, to, to be able to manually adjust the frame to get to all the different targets that, that you want to get to. Significantly so, more invasive. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, not necessarily. It, it, it's still you're still making smaller smaller openings, uh, yeah. but it just takes a lot more time to, to do all the, the planning and, and placement of the electrodes. So the ROSA is much more uh, efficient for that, and so we can do a lot of that planning ahead of time. And so one, the day of the surgery can be uh, the electrodes can be placed much more quickly. We had a conversation with Dr. Scott Perry, Medical Director of Neurology at Cook Children's, about new treatments for Dravet syndrome. Sort of on a, on a uh, top level, what is Dravet? Uh, Dravet syndrome is a, it's a, a rare genetic epilepsy, one in about 15,000 people. Uh, we'll have an abnormality, most commonly in a gene called SCN1A, uh, that impacts a sodium channel in their brain, and it causes this epilepsy. Uh, the epilepsy begins in the first year of life with seizures, often in the setting of fever. You know, many times they're very long seizures. Uh, and then as they get older, after age one, they develop other types of seizures, myoclonic seizures, absence seizures, tonic-clonic seizures, that are uh, often very difficult to control with medications. Uh, the seizures are often associated as well with you know, other problems, so delays in development, behavior problems, sleep problems, Sometimes uh, GI problems, problems with eating, feeding. Um, autism can be more common. So a lot goes into uh, to make the whole picture of Dravet syndrome. And is genetic testing the main way of diagnosis at this point? Are there other genes associated other than the SCN1A? Yeah, so ge genetic uh, testing is, is definitely the best way to kind of get a confirmatory diagnosis. So the history is most important. It has a very kind of particular way it presents. But doing the gene testing and finding SCN1A is going to uh, be the gene that is involved in about 85% of the cases. The other 15% may be from other genes. Um, there are some uh, other genes that rarely are associated with a very similar presentation. And then some maybe we don't know yet. You know, maybe there's genes we're not aware of yet that we're still looking for. What promising leads are out there for treating Dravet? So I, we, could, we could talk for over an hour about all the things that are available or are soon to be available right now. Wow. Um, you know, years ago there wasn't, there wasn't much to talk about. It was expert opinion and a few drugs that people were used to using. Uh, in the last two years we've had uh, several drugs approved. Steripentol uh, was approved uh, earlier this year. Uh, Epidiolex, which is a CBD, uh, was approved last year. Uh, there's a new drug called finfluramine that's likely going to be approved in the early part of uh, early part of next year. There's an ongoing study uh, of a drug called uh, OV935 that is looking at uh, Dravet syndrome as a population. And then uh, there are a variety of gene-based treatments that are coming up that are quite exciting. 
Why is it that in a lot of the clinical studies that um, for the new drugs, I know it was certainly that case with Epidiolex and I've seen it with Fenfluramine as well, why is it that uh, they often do these studies with patients with Dravet, that that is the population that they do these clinical studies with? Oh, there's a couple reasons. Um, one is when you do a clinical trial for a drug and you need to, you need to show it works, it's superior to a placebo, you have to have a you know, you have to have a certain number of patients to show that. And, and what you want is people who are very similar. So they all have a very similar disorder, uh, which Drave is, you know, something that's very clear. It is one entity. And then you want a group of people that has a lot of seizures because you don't want a trial that's going to last years, you know, to collect enough seizures to see there's a difference. So with something like Drave syndrome, similar to Lennox Gastaut syndrome, you have children who have a lot of seizures. So in a short period of time, 12 to 14 weeks, you can show that there's a difference with the drug and, you know, not drag it out for so long. What is coming in the future? Where would you like to see research focused moving forward? What is, what's, where do you find there to be the most promise? Well, the, um, the future to me is now. Um, so what's going on right now is that all these drugs we kind of talked about at the beginning are drugs that treat epilepsy, they treat seizures, but that, that's a symptom of the epilepsy. That's not the whole problem, right? And, you know, while these drugs might get approved in Dravet syndrome, they're approved that way because that's who we studied it in. Doesn't mean that drug couldn't possibly work for Lennox Gusto or, or any other epilepsy. My point is that the drugs are not necessarily special to Dravet. What we want to do is you want to get at the problem in Drave, which in this case is a gene that we know. We know what it does. We know what the gene is, right? So the treatments that are coming down that are very exciting are genetic-based treatments that look to basically change the way the good version of the gene works so that it produces more of good SCN1A so that these kids are not deficient in that protein and they end up hopefully not only having seizure control, but maybe not developing some of the other things that we see. You know, if we treat them early enough, can we make this disease just go away altogether and actually cure an epilepsy? Real cure. Like a real cure. Yeah. Not a take a part of your brain out cure or right. not a part of a keep you on medicines for the rest of your life cure. A truly fix the problem that caused the epilepsy and get rid of it. And you know, if it works for SCN1A, there are a variety of other genetic based epilepsies that it makes perfectly good sense we could just extrapolate it to more and more epilepsies. So yeah. I, it's a lot closer than people than think. Than we think. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing to hear and I think gives a lot of families hope, which Absolutely. is what we yeah. are all scratching for. It, so It gives their doctors hope too, that we can actually, we have some real cures coming, I think. I want to thank everyone who took the time to speak with us at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. The event is truly inspirational and provides all of us who have been touched by epilepsy with another reminder that we are not alone. There are 65 million people worldwide and 3.4 million Americans affected by this devastating disease. We are a community of patients, families, physicians, and researchers desperately seeking an end to epilepsy. Cure knows that the only way to achieve that goal is through research. Please consider supporting Cure's mission by donating at cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure. The information contained herein is provided for general information only 
and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.